Well, we are um, excited today to have a guest preaching this morning. This is Dee McIntosh. Can you welcome her? Uh, Pastor Dee is pastoring a new church plant called Lighthouse Minneapolis. Yeah. And it's over on the north side. And you can maybe talk a little bit more about that. But um, just really excited to have her here with us because personally, for me, she has been a leader in my life, someone that I look to, uh, to, to, to figure out what it looks like to be a prophet today and to be somebody who steps in and stands in the gap. Uh, Dee is also a part of leading a group called Black Clergy United, and they've been a part of being a spiritual presence in the midst of the racial climate and the racial tension, which we know is more than just tension. That's happening in our city. And so I have looked to Dee and said to her, I'm following you and have been able to be literally following her through this um, over this last year specifically. And so it's really a privilege for me to have you here with my community. I love all of you guys. I love you. And it's going to be really great to hear from her this morning. And so um, would you just join with me in just praying for her before she brings a message to us from God's word? God, we thank you for Pastor D. We thank you for her life. God, we thank you for her witness. We thank you that you have created her as a reconciler and as a woman after your heart, Jesus. And I pray this morning that you would use her as a, a mouthpiece, as a prophetess to our community this morning. God, would you just prepare our hearts, our minds to hear what you want to say to us through her this morning? God, that you would speak clearly, that we would be different people when we leave here today. And we thank you, God, and pray as we always do also for this school, for Sheridan, for the opportunity that we have to worship in a public school, God. We don't take that for granted. So we ask that you would bless them, that you would do more than we could ask or imagine in the midst of this community, and that you would do that this morning as well. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. One more welcome for Dee, please. Thank you. All right, so every time someone calls me a prophet or prophetess, it's a scary thing. I don't know if you're familiar with the Old Testament, but they always have terrible endings, right? It's just horrible. I hate when people speak that over me because I'm like, wait, does that mean I'm going to, like, what does that mean for the end of my life? Steph, don't say things like that. Uh, it is awesome to be with you guys this morning. I feel like you're really far away, so I'm not going to take that as an offense that no one is sitting closer. I was actually preparing to do a, like a run off the stage, jump into the crowd, but no one is here to catch me, as Steph said, so I will stay seated for the remainder of my time. There's two things you should know about me. The first is that I'm not a rule follower. I think that's really important to say. And the second is I'm an Old Testament junkie. To the core of my being, I love the Old Testament. And some of you are probably thinking, how is a non-rule follower a rebel, a fan of the Old Testament? Think about it, right? I mean, if you think about the Old Testament, that's where all the laws, the ordinances, the commandments, all the what to do, what not to do is found. But I still love the Old Testament. And as such, I thought that when I came to talk about advocacy, I would actually pull from an Old Testament text, the book of Nehemiah. So I will begin with Nehemiah chapter 2. We're actually going to cover the entire chapter of Nehemiah chapter 2. I think it's weird, right? In churches, we have to like prepare people to read an entire chapter in the Bible. So I'm preparing you now. We're going to read the entire chapter of Nehemiah chapter 2. All right, here we go. Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. In the, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when the wine was served him, I carried the wine and gave it to the king. Now, I had never been sad in his presence before, so the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This can only be sadness of the heart. 
Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad? The city, when the city, the place of my ancestors' graves lays in waste, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my ancestors' graves, that I may rebuild it. The king said to me, how long will you be gone, and when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set a date. I set him a date. Then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may grant me passage until I arrive in Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, directing him to give me timber to make beams for the gates of the temple fortress and for the wall of the city, for the house that I shall accompany occupy. We're going to go down, move to verse 11. So I came in Jerusalem. So I came to Jerusalem and was there for three days. Then I got up during the night and a few men were with me and I told no one what God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the animal I rode and I went out by night by the valley gate past the dragon spring. These are fantastic names, by the way. Valley gate past the dragon spring and to the dung gate and inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went to the fountain gate and to the king's pool, but there was no place for the animal I was riding to, to continue. So I went up the way of the valley by night and inspected the wall. And then I turned back and entered the valley gate and so returned. Moving on down to verse 17. And then I said to them, these are the men that were with him, you see the trouble we are in now how Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates are burned. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem so that we may no longer suffer disgrace. I told them that the hand of God had been gracious upon me and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And then they said, let us start building. So they committed themselves to the common good. They committed themselves to the common good. Here in chapter 2 of Nehemiah, we see Nehemiah, the cupbearer of the king, leaving the capital of Susa, where the king Artaxerxes, the king of the Assyrian Empire, lived. He left because he had heard a report from his brother Hanani that the king, that the gates of Jerusalem, his hometown, had been destroyed. Before I go into what is happening in this context, I want to give us, I want us to remember together the history of the Israelites so we can understand the context that we are in. So remember this with me, okay? So we have the Israelites are in the wilderness for how many years? 40 years. They're wandering around, right? A journey that should have taken them a couple of weeks. They're there for 40. After they roam for 40 years, they enter into the promised land. And then shortly after, they begin to ask God for a king. Now, God doesn't want to give them a king, but he gives them a king because they request it. And the first king of Israel is who? Yes, it is Saul. Fantastic, Mill City. So the first king is Saul. Now Saul has his issues as someone that grew up Pentecostal, that whole prophet frenzy thing is fantastic in my imagination. But Saul has his issues and then the king, the next king after him comes up is who? David. So David comes and takes over the Israel uh, kingdom after Saul. But David has a few issues. He has, um, let's say, a taste for uh, feminine flesh. Let's just put it that way. There's probably kids in the room, so I won't go into the depth and what that means. So then David hears from God 
that the kingdom will transfer to his son Solomon. Now Solomon is the wisest king in all of the world, in all of the earth, in all of history, and yet Solomon has a little issue with the feminine flesh as well, like his father David, the whole, you know, 1,000, 2,000 concubines, wives thing. I don't know if that caught you off guard, but it did me. Just don't understand how you have that much time. So Solomon hears from the prophet that because you have turned away from God and you've begun to serve the gods of your wives and your concubines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the kingdom in which you rule will be split into two. And that's what happens. So now we have, we go from one kingdom, the United Kingdom of Israel, and now we have two. We have the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. Now the people in both kingdoms, they're split between the tribes. Now they start to not necessarily do what God had called them to do. Again, the rules, laws, ordinances thing is just a lot for them, so they don't adhere to them. So then God sends the prophets. Prophets was really a bad word back in that day. So he sends the prophets, and he tells the people through the prophets that I am going to send you into exile. The people are sent into exile first by the Babylonians and second by the Assyrians. This is where we are in this context with Nehemiah. The people have been exiled. The walls of Jerusalem have been destroyed, have been turned, torn down. They have removed all of the people of value to the Assyrians away from the kingdom, away from Judah, sorry, and have left the orphans and the widows. They've left the elderly. They've left the disabled. And this is who's living in Jerusalem at the time. It's the most vulnerable. So now Jerusalem has become the inner city or the hood. I call it the inner city of the Bible context because this is where the most valuable live, and this is where Nehemiah comes in. In Nehemiah chapter 1, his brother Hanani comes and reports to Nehemiah that the walls are torn down. And Nehemiah's response is one that I think that the church today should learn from. His first response is not, well, let me actually hear the testimony of Fox News before I can actually correlate what you're saying to me. That's not what he says. He says he begins immediately lamenting the news that he has heard. He laments and he weeps about the most vulnerable being in the city of Jerusalem with no defense around them. The next thing that Nehemiah does is he repents. He repents on behalf of himself, on behalf of his entire family, and then he repents on behalf of his nation. That's huge. I struggle repenting on behalf of my own sins. Now you're trying to tell me to repent on behalf of my family's sins, and then you want me to repent on behalf of the nation? Really? Do you know what country we live in? Do you know how long that would take, Jesus? Just saying, right? And then he tells God, he recites the words that God said to the Israelite people. If you turn from your wicked ways and you repent, then I will bless you. Side note, a lot of people say God bless America, and it strikes me as odd because to bless in the Hebrew means to be forced to kneel. It means to be brought low. Does anybody catch that? Okay, I'm just going to keep moving. That side note, think about that. God bless America, God bring America low. That's actually what that means in the Hebrew, moving right along. So then Nehemiah is a cupbearer of the king Artaxerxes in the land of Susa. And he has an opportunity to actually advocate for those who are living in Jerusalem. I've been asked to come to talk about advocacy. I am an activist to the core of my being, and I love to be an activist. But I also think that the core of being an activist means that I have an opportunity, a unique opportunity, to stand in spaces and places for people who are vulnerable, who do not have voices, who actually do have voices, but they may have voices we tend not to listen to. And this is what Nehemiah takes seriously. He's a cupbearer of the king. He's sitting in a place of privilege. 
Now, this might be a stretch, but Nehemiah is, for lack of a better term, middle-class citizen in the, key, in the kingdom of Artaxerxes in the land of Susa. I mean, think about it. Everything's taken care of. You get to live in a palace. You don't have to pay for rent. I mean, the only real issue to job security is if someone wanted to poison the king, you drink the cup, and then, you know, that whole thing there. But apart from that, I mean, you have fantastic job security. You have health insurance. Everything's taken care of. He's middle class. But he hears the report of his brother who's living in their inner city, and he takes it seriously. So what I want to talk to you today, Mill City, is about what it means to be an advocate for people whose voices are seldomly heard. How do we advocate today in a society, in a city, that is just wrought with issues? I don't know if you watch the news. I do. I try not to watch the debate, but I did. Oh. Woosaw, right? I started yoga just because I watched that debate, okay? But let's talk about what it means to advocate then. What does it mean for us to be the people of God, the hands and feet of Jesus Christ today in our city, and how can we actually impact change? The people of God were never meant to rely on government. The people of God were never meant to rely on outside forces to actually be change agents. The people of God were always called to move in the spirit of God to breed transformation in this plane. Amen? All right. So this is the first thing that Nehemiah does. We read the whole chapter, most of the whole chapter. The first thing that Nehemiah does after he hears about what is happening in Susa, he divests himself of his privilege. Think about it. Nehemiah takes a massive risk in approaching the king and saying to the king, I actually need to take a time out, I need to take time off work, and I need to go back to my hometown. Newsflash. The king, Artaxerxes, could care less about what's happening in Jerusalem. Why would he care? His people have ransacked the city. They are in charge. They have taken over. Why would he send his cupbearer back to a town and then have them rebuild the city gates? The city gates represented security for the people of Israel. And yet, Nehemiah goes to the, goes to the king and says, I need to go home. Not only do I need to go home, but I need you to write me a letter so that I can get wood to rebuild the city gate. He divests himself of his privilege. Now, I love the word divestment instead of, say, leverage. We use the word leverage a lot in the Christian community. I don't actually like that word because divestment actually speaks more to the heart of the gospel, i.e. Jesus Christ, than the word leveraging does. To divest means to deprive one of power, rights, and possession. It means to, to dispossess yourself. It means to dispossess yourself of the rights and the privileges that you have. Nehemiah dispossesses himself of the privilege that he has to be the cupbearer of the king. He takes a risk. He gets rid of all of the security and safety that he has known for the sake of people living in the inner city of Jerusalem. Now, I will use a New Testament statement, mainly not because of how cool I think the New Testament is, but mainly because it speaks to what I'm saying right now, and that is the word kenosis. Anybody familiar with the, pro the name, the word kenosis in the Greek? Yes, I got a hand. This is fantastic. I love when I get a hand on kenosis, okay? So in Philippians 2, the Bible says that Jesus, though he was equal with God, chose not to exploit the equalness. In other words, Jesus chose to divest himself 
of his privilege, his equality with God, so that he could go to the cross. The word there to divest means penosis. It means to empty oneself out of the privilege. And this is what we see Jesus Christ do. This is what God has called us to do, Mill City, when we begin talking about advocacy for people who are, may not be like us. We all have privilege, right? Some of us have more privilege than others, but we can all at least name some of our privileges. When I was single, I didn't realize how privileged I was, then I got married and I realized, oh man, I should have utilized that single privilege. When my husband and I didn't have kids, I did not think that I had privilege, and then I was like, oh, I just want to be a mom so bad. Then I had kids, and I thought, whew, we really should have taken advantage of that privilege. Some of you have babies right now. You understand what I'm saying? That I get to sleep in late is a privilege, right? Amen, somebody. That I get to sleep in late is a huge privilege, right? If you're white, you have privilege. If you are a male, you have male privilege. If you come from a two-parent home, you have privilege. If you own your house, you have privilege. If you can pay your rent and have never missed a payment on your rent, you have privilege. We have privilege in almost every aspect of our life, but we take those privileges for granted. But when we see the example of Nehemiah, we see that he realizes the privilege that he has, and he begins to divest that privilege. I own a house in North Minneapolis. I love my house. We actually own a duplex, and we use it for rental property. Now, I was not here when the land in Minnesota was stolen from Native Americans. I wasn't here. I, I didn't have a part in that. Matter of fact, my family was enslaved in North Carolina. We had nothing to do with that at all. But I recognized my privilege as being a homeowner. And in recognizing my privilege as a homeowner in Minnesota, I have made the conscious decision to make sure to the best of my ability to advocate for Native Americans to ensure that they don't lose any more of their tribal land. That when they have sacred burial sites, D is there advocating for them to make sure that they don't lose anything else and that nothing else is stolen from them. This is what I mean about divesting myself of my privilege. I do not take for granted that I own a house. It doesn't mean that I sell my house and get rid of it, but it does mean in what ways can I divest that privilege of being a homeowner to speak and stand in spaces where others don't have the same voice. The second thing that Nehemiah does is he begins to inspect the wall for himself. Look at what chapter 2 says me in verse 17, maybe 18. He says he went, no, that's the wrong verse, verse 11. He says he got up in the night with a few men and he only took the animal that he could ride and he went out by night and he began to investigate the wall. He began to inspect the story for himself. Notice the difference here. Do, do we see how this is very different from what we do? We hear a story and we say, we need to hear all the news. We, I need to hear all the facts first. You see how opposite this is from what Nehemiah does? Nehemiah hears it, he laments, repents, and then he moves into action. And then he begins to in investigate it and inspect it for himself. He divests himself of his privilege to say, I just need to wait until I hear more facts first. That is a privilege. If you have ever been in a position where you can say, well, I'm just going to wait. I'll wait until I hear all the news stories. You're sitting in privilege. That's a side note. That wasn't even in my notes. Let's move on. So then he goes and he inspects the wall for himself. One of my favorite stories is of Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa was doing her work and living in Calcutta. 
I hear, I've heard all of these stories of people that would write to her and say, how are you doing that? How do you experience God in the midst of such poverty? And Mother Teresa would always send a letter back and it would say, come and see. Very simple. She may not have written more words. It would just simple be, come and see. And this is what Nehemiah does here. He goes and he investigates and inspects the walls for himself. And if we're going to be advocates for change, if we're actually going to have an impact in this community and beyond, we have to be willing to step out of our comfort zones and go and inspect the walls for ourselves. Let me give you an example of how this happened in my own life. There was an ordinance, the city ordinance, that was on the docket to be passed in North Minneapolis in January. The ordinance was super simple. I'd heard about it in, in November and December, but I didn't think anything of it. It was simple. It was to ban plastic bags from being used in grocery stores over north. Now, as an advocate for environmental, to environmental friendliness, I was like, oh, can you, am I still on? Okay. And then I also thought, well, as a homeowner, it would be even better not to have to continue to pick up plastic bags off my front lawn. I do that every day. It's a hassle. It's a pain. So I thought, sure. I won't go to the city council meeting at all to, to stand on one side or the other. They're going to pass it. This would be amazing. And then I got an email from the elders council meeting. Eldos Council is a group of pastors, clergy, and city leaders in North Minneapolis, and they were calling, calling an immediate mandatory meeting. It was an emergency meeting. And on the docket for the meeting was the ban of plastic bags in North Minneapolis. I was clueless. I was like, why are we having a meeting about this? Like, I could be doing something else today. So I go to the meeting. And in the meeting, they start breaking down how this would impact low-income families on the north side. They begin first by explaining that Northside is a food desert. There's only one grocery store for a 100 block radius of houses in North. Then they begin to talk about the fact that most people rely on corner stores. If you know anything about corner stores, you know that corner stores' prices are inflated. Then they begin to talk about how the prices in corner stores would actually go up to account for the cost of having to purchase paper bags over plastic bags. Then they begin to, di to dissect through the ordinance, which would also add a mandatory five-cent cost per paper bag that you use at the grocery store. As we began to inspect the wall of this ordinance, it became very clear to me that if this passed, this would have a greater impact on my neighbors than it would me. But it would be an impact nevertheless. So then the, the idea for the council was that we would all show up, we would bring our church congregations, and we would stand so that they wouldn't pass the city ordinance. You have to go and inspect the walls for yourself. This is something I would have easily taken for granted, something I would have not even paid much attention to. But it would have had a massive impact on my neighbors. The third thing that Nehemiah does he divests himself of his privilege. He goes and he inspects the walls for himself. And the third thing he does is found in, I, in Nehemiah 18. I told them that the hand of God had been gracious upon me and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And then they said, let us start building. So they committed themselves to the common good. This is huge for us in the church. We have to learn how to work well with others. We have to learn how to work alongside of others. 
This is what it means to be an advocate. We come alongside others, and it doesn't actually matter if you agree or disagree with all of the things that whatever the group is does. What it means is that you stand in a humble position and you do the work alongside of them. As Steph said, I'm one of the founding members of BCUC, Black Clergy United for Change, and we stand as clergy liaisons, pastoral liaisons for the Black Lives Matter movement. I love Black Lives Matter. Hashtag it. I can say, though, honestly, that I may not agree with every tactic of BLM Minneapolis, but I can tell you honestly that you will find me there at almost every single thing that they do because I recognize how important it is for me as a person of faith, as a community leader and as a pastor to be alongside the people who are impacted by being black in Minneapolis every single day. I don't have to agree with it, but I'm with them. Does that make sense? And this is what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah could have easily have said, I'm just gonna leave the wood here and go back to my comfortable position in the capital. He had no obligation to stay, none. And yet he said, let us do the work together. And if you read the rest of the book of Nehemiah, you find that he doesn't actually leave. He remains with the people until the wall is completely finished. He stays for the long haul. This is what God is calling us to do. Mill City, I've heard many wonderful things about this church. And so I know that what I am saying is not something that's new to you. You know how to stick it in and to stay. You know how to come alongside others and do the work. But what are the areas, what are the spaces that you may be more hesitant in getting involved in? We all have them. I want to do a quick survey. How many of you that are of age practices your right to vote? Show of hands. Okay, hands down. How many of you of the same group intend to vote in November? Okay, hands down. How many of you take seriously voting for our next president? Okay, hands down. How many of you have been to a city council meeting? Look, take a look around. Okay, hands down. Do you realize that low-income families in our city are more affected by city council meetings and the ordinances in our city than they are by national decisions. Let's do this one more time. Hands of people who will be going and voting in November for the two people that we have. I can't even call them candidates, the two people that we have. <laughs> Hands up, okay? Most of the room will exercise your right to vote. I have no problem with that. I will be there as well. But did you see how few hands were up for city council meetings, for local level meetings that actually have everyday impacts on the people who live in our communities? I didn't go to these meetings before. I thought, oh, they have really no impact. But as I began to inspect the wall of North Minneapolis and I began to realize that there were actually ordinances against people spitting, you could have been arrested on the north side for spitting. When I realized that there used to be ordinances against lurking, what does that mean? When I realized there were ordinances against people, groups of people standing on a sidewalk, public sidewalk, more than three, you could actually be arrested. Then I began to realize that my impact would be larger if I actually began to be active in my community than if I actually did all the national things. I'm not saying that it's not important. I'm just saying the impact is felt more 
on a more daily basis by my neighbors than what we will end up with in November. So I am coming to you to say to Mill City, will you actually be advocates for change in our city? Will you begin to divest yourself of the privilege that you have? Show up to a city council meeting. Show up to a neighborhood meeting. I've been to my neighborhood meetings. It's like me and one other person. It is slim pickets. Show up. Listen to the ordinances that the city is planning on passing. Let's talk about the policies and how it impacts people on an everyday basis. Let's be advocates for change here in our city. My favorite verse, and I'm going to come to my close. The band can go ahead and come up. My favorite verse in all of scripture. I say this a lot. That's just a hashtag side note. Is Isaiah 58. In Isaiah 58, this is actually the scripture that Lighthouse Minneapolis is based upon. The scripture says, And you shall, those from among you, will rebuild the old waste places. You will be called the repairer of the breach, those who can fix anything. I desperately want to see our city transformed. And I don't know about you, but I have this vision of Minneapolis being the place where people around the nation come and say, I don't know how y'all figured that out, but we want in. We have the capacity and the ability, and it starts with every single person in this room. But will you be willing to divest yourself of your privilege? Figure out what that actually means for your life. If you own a home, join me. Join me when we go and stand and protest against Native American burial sites being stripped If you don't own a home, still, you can still come and join me. (laughs) Come with me and join with me in Lighthouse Minneapolis and Mill City and Pastor Steph Williams, I'm I'm throwing you out there, when we go to city council meetings and we realize that they could be passing an ordinance that would have a catastrophic effect on our neighbors. You have the capacity to do it and you can begin it right now. You don't have to wait you can join in. So I'm going to go ahead and pray for us. And my prayer is very simple. It is that the Holy Spirit would begin to do a work in you that you may, through his power, his love, his mercy, and his grace, be a change and be a change agent in this, our city. So Father God, we come before you thanking you for who you are and everything that you do. God, I am honest, this world is huge. And it is so easy to get caught up in everything that is happening. It is so easy to feel like I have no place. Father God, I thank you for the example of Nehemiah. One man who decided that he would divest himself of his privilege. And he began to work alongside those who were vulnerable and those who were in need And together, Lord, together they rebuild their city. Father God, you are the God of our city. And you are the God of this people. Father God, there is so much greater to come. And I pray, Lord God, that you inspire us and use us. Allow us, oh God, to be those who will be called the fixers of anything. We come now in your spirit. In the matchless and wonderful name of your son. 
lives both now and forever. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.